Welcome to the Future of Protein Production Podcast. In this series, we will explore the technological advancements that are shaping alternative proteins. From cultured meats to plant-based proteins, we will talk to experts and innovators who are working towards a more sustainable, efficient, and kind protein production system. Join us as we dive into the exciting possibilities and challenges of the alternative protein production industry in the years to come. Good afternoon, good morning, and even good evening. A huge welcome to all of you for joining us here today at the Future of Protein Production. My name is Nick Bradley, and I am your host for the next hour or so. Just a brief review of who we are. We are a platform that connects companies in the alternative proteins value chain. Our three main pillars being plant-based, cultivated, and fermentation-enabled proteins. We do this via daily news, weekly emailers, monthly webinars, podcasts, and our quarterly magazine, Protein Production Technology International. We also organize events uh, in person and virtual. And on that note, as our video just showed, we hope to be able to meet many of you face-to-face -face on the 11th and 12th of October when we hold our Future of Protein Production live conference and exhibition at Rye Amsterdam in the Netherlands. We have 65 speakers who will be delivering around 30 presentations over two days and participating in six engaging panel discussions. Plus, you'll meet experts from 30 exhibiting companies and you'll be able to network with more than 500 delegates. It would be great to meet all of you there later in the year. Now on to today, the topic being the road to scalability, scale economics for cultured meats. A little over a month ago, the US Department of Agriculture approved both Upside Foods and Good Meat to sell their cultivated chicken, following clearance from the Food and Drug Administration. And within weeks, products from those companies were tasted by consumers for the first time in the USA at Bar Kren in San Francisco and China Chilcano in Washington, D.C. Who was first doesn't really matter. It's a huge achievement for both companies and significant for the global cell ag industry. That said, technology success and regulatory approvals were simply the first hurdles. The next is scalability at the right cost. And we're here today to discuss that. The sector must scale up on lower costs to seriously challenge conventional meat. To be price competitive, cultivated meats need to reach a production cost of around $3 per pound. We currently don't know what upside and good meats costs are, although Believer, another cultivated meat company, has said it expects to achieve price parity with organic chicken by the end of 2024. And I guess the emphasis there is on organic chicken. Um, the, cost, the challenges of commercializing cultivated meat at scale while keeping the pay price down are daunting. The cost of the cell culture media alone can run from hundreds to thousands of dollars per litre, albeit some companies have shared publicly milestones of around $2 per litre. And it's a long bet in terms of cost and the time needed to build out the scalable infrastructure. The sector needs substantial public and private funding to take a bite out of the $1.7 trillion meat industry. Now, that money is needed for production facilities, massive bioreactors, uh, where the meat is grown, and the nutrient mix to feed the meat cells. So forgive the pun, but it's a cell-cultivated chicken and egg situation. If, pri if private, philanthropic, and public sector investors are going to put money into cell-cultivated meat, costs need to come down first and quickly. So how do we reduce those costs? And can we realistically reduce costs enough? Now, the Good Food Institute and CE Delft published a techno-economic analysis in 2021, I think it was, that projected we could lower the production price to about $2.50 per pound by 2030. At the time, I think that represented a 4,000-fold reduction. In contrast, though, we have others suggesting that cell-cultured meat will likely never be a cost-competitive food, with barriers such as thermodynamics, cell metabolism, 
bioreactor design, ingredient costs, facility construction, and other factors that will need to be overcome before cultivated proteins can be produced cheaply enough to displace traditional meat. So who's right? Will the cell culture process forever be plagued by extreme, intractable technical challenges at food scale? Is cultured meat the best hope to save the climate, or is it something in between? And will it ever make sense to produce food the way we currently make our drugs? The adverse consequences of traditionally produced meat on health, land use, climate, and the environment are undisputed. The stakes couldn't be higher. There's another pun there for you. That's why developing alternative forms of meat, whether derived from animal cells or even plants and microorganisms, will be critical in meeting the Paris Agreement goal to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees centigrade. Now, before we begin, I wanted to let you know that you can submit your questions via the Q&A box on the right-hand side of your screen. There will be a bit of time at the end for our participants to answer your questions, and I will do my best to get through as many of them as possible. Time now to introduce our panellists for today. It's a truly international presence with speakers from the UK, India, Singapore, and the USA. So people waking up early and staying up late. Um, now, I'm going to come to each of you individually with a question, but before answering that, could you just let me know who you are, what company you're from, and what your company's mission is in this nascent value chain. So ladies first, it's going to be Martina. Uh, who are you and what is CellRev's role in the market? Hi, Nick, and hello, everybody that is attending the webinar today. I'm Martina. I'm the co-founder and CSO at CellRev. I'm a biologist as background uh, with a PhD in tissue engineering, and the uh, company is a spin-out from Newcastle University, so this was part of my, my PhD. So CellRev, uh, we are experts in adherent cell culture uh, with the focus on process optimization and intensification. And in particular, we have developed uh, the first continuous bioprocess for adherent cell manufacturing. So we are a B2B business helping to support the scale-up challenge uh, in the cell lag. Brilliant. And uh, your question, what so far this year has been your standout story in cultivated meat? Well, it's a very hard choice uh, because we really, you know, as you also highlighted before, we've been a lot of, uh, you know, updates that are technical, that are uh, with partnerships, regulatory. So it's quite a hard choice. But if I ever need to pick one, considering also my background in tissue engineering, I would say the world's first um, cultivated uh, meat that was 100% uh, good. So there was no hold involved uh, that really by your tissues was able to uh, to develop. Interesting. Thank you for that. Uh, Shabanka, on to you next. Um, we've heard today, actually, that Aleph Farms and Migros have submitted Europe's first dossier for approval in Switzerland. Um, EFSA is still awaiting its first submission, meanwhile. Um, are you surprised at how quickly things seem to be moving at the moment? And where is India uh, in its regulations and overall cultivated meat sector? Hi, Nick. Uh, I think... In general, I'm not surprised that things are moving quickly. I know we're all so excited. It couldn't happen fast enough for all of us. But um, a, in, in, in the Indian Indian landscape, so to speak, we have about uh, you know four or five cultivated meat companies, mostly startups, working in this domain. We have a large amount of uh, you know legacy life sciences companies in India who supply to companies abroad. So these are companies who've done business. Um, in other life sciences or, or biomanufacturing in the past. And so they are active members of the value chain, producing growth factors and such. Um, in specific terms for the cultivated industry within India, uh, there is apparently a working group 
on the part of the Indian Food Safety Regulator, which is um, stacked with you know, a bunch of senior scientists from India who are open to look at proposals. At this point, no one has submitted a proposal that uh, is going to you know go to market anytime soon. I think um, the the U.S. regulatory framework opening up is going to be a big help. Uh, it's going to give a lot of direction to the Indian regulators as well as to or and even companies approaching Indian regulators to say, hey, here's a proof of concept of how a regulator can do it. And hopefully in the, in some coming years, there'll be some applications to, to the safety authorities. Yep, SSEI. And uh, minor works is involved in uh, scaffolds, I believe. Yeah, so, yes, correct. So, I'm, oh, sorry about that. I'm Shabanka, I'm the CTO at MyOworks. And uh, we make... We make scaffolding material for cultivated meat. Uh, we we aim to become like a you know an ecosystem of products for the cultivated meat industry. We started with adherent surfaces for uh, cultivated meat, starting with a scaffolding solution, which is a three D scaffold, and also we work on micro carriers. So these are you know little bits that can float around in a bioreactor, and your adherent cells can grow on them and proliferate, and we can um, really cost. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to be coming on to microcarriers a bit later. Thank you for that, Shibanka. Um, Tony, you're next. What's your role at CRB? Uh, who is CRB? And um, being at the coalface as you are, how have you seen this market progress um, since you've been involved in it? Yeah. Hi, Nick. Uh, Tony Moses with CRB. CRB is a, an engineering firm and a consulting firm and a construction firm, all three that work with companies that are looking to uh, optimize their production or build a new facility. Uh, so we'll start with companies that are just planning, even uh, looking to raise money to help them understand how much money it would take to build a facility one day, uh, all the way through uh, supervising and overseeing the construction of a new facility. And we'll do uh, large-scale facilities down to pilot and lab-scale facilities. Uh, we, we have maybe 20 alternative protein projects ranging from plant-based to, of course, cultivated meat. Um, and I, in my role at CRB, I'm a, the director of product innovation. So I work with companies to understand what they want to make and how much they want to make, and then help translate that into a production strategy or facility. Uh, so it's been re- really uh, a pleasure to be part of this market and uh, see the phenomenal growth. Uh, we've we've seen uh, companies like Good Meat uh, come out of the gate and, and announce plans to build large facilities, but I think uh, this year, the story that sticks out to me is that the cultivated meat companies continue to uh, fundraise, though more in a stealth mode, and they continue to raise money uh, or, or amounts of funds that are still enough to uh, build brick and mortar infrastructure. Uh, if I had to pick a story, it'd be Omeat's recent announcement that they raised $40 million. Uh, that generally is enough to get laboratory and potentially even pilot space established, which I think is critical for this industry to get the product out there for uh, consumers to experience and, and get that uh, real world, world real-time feedback on what's working and what isn't. Thank you for that, Tony. And uh, finally, CK, um, you're distinguished on this panel today as you're the only manufacturer of cell-based food products. Um, as a company in this field, how much of a headache is it with regulations uh, for Amami Meats and um, where do you focus your attention geographically? Yeah, so um, hi Nick and hi everyone. So uh, my name is Chungkit, you can call me CK. So I'm leading a cell line development team at Umami Meats. Uh, so Nick, just to make some uh, correction here, 
So we are only half right to say that Umami Meat is a manufacturer of cell-based product. Um, so yes, we do produce sub-cultivated meat, uh, but that is mostly to uh, to make prototype to sell, showcase our technology. And in fact, Umami is actually a B2B company which focuses on you know uh, building a tech platform for um, production of cultivated seafood. So essentially, you can think of it like a operating system for cultivated seafood where we are trying to develop, you know, like a standardized, modular, and automated production system uh, for all the uh, food producers around the world. And to answer your question on the regulation, um, so it is true that the process of, you know, getting regulatory approval is very lengthy and, you know, stringent. But I think being in Singapore actually gives us some advantage as well, as the guidelines here, I think, are more well-defined compared to the... um, uh, U.S. and the Singapore government also have like a more friendly attitude towards um, cultivated meat or alternative protein in general um, because it actually fit their national um, 30 by 30 goal uh, which is to produce 30% of the food supply locally by 2030 and so um, for umami meat um, we are pretty much you know focusing our effort on getting regulatory approval in Singapore um, which I believe is also a strategy that most companies are, you know, um, going after now, as we actually see a huge influx in company coming to Singapore, either to set up their manufacturing plan or to, you know, set Singapore as their first um, go-to market. Yep. Brilliant. Okay, um, let's not assume everyone's an expert who's watching today, so it might be worth starting with a, an explanation of what cultured or, or cultivated meat is. And while we are looking at uh, making it a reality, and as briefly as you can, mention the process steps from start to finish to make a cultivated meat product. Um, so, CK, do you want to kick us off? Um, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so, I mean, in, in, in summary, cultivated meat um, is actually made out of like real animal cells, um, you know, like muscle and fats. So, technically, it should be classified as a real meat. And... Um, you know, with regards to the, you know, why people are doing this, there are like, you know, many dif- different reasons behind this. And some that I can think of is, you know, for example, um, the environmental um, issue, like, um, the, you know, the in the traditional agriculture industry, um, things like heat conversion is like a very important um, issue. So even, you know, compared to the most efficient um, heat conversion machines such as chicken, uh, for cells, it's actually uh, performing a lot better because um, it doesn't need energy to perform, you know, other functions such as, you know, keeping the animal warm or, you know, to hunt around, going around hunting for food, etc. So at the end, um, I think less land will be needed um, and also less water, so which will lead to like less damage to the ecosystem as well. And I think the second point uh, could be because of like, you know, animal cruelty issue, because millions of animals are being slaughtered every year just to feed human. So I think it will be really good if you can avoid doing so, but still get all the nutrients that we need. And I think in that front, um, cultivated meat is actually, you know, coming up as a more superior option because in terms of nutritional value is, you know, pretty similar because it's made out of um, you know, similar things, which is animal cells. And the last point that I can think of is, you know, could be due to health reason. So if you think about especially seafood, um, one problem is that, you know, 
Um, nowadays, the seafood, especially in a certain part of the world, are very heavily polluted with like heavy metals, microplastics, and stuff, which it has become a very huge issue recently. So, and because cultivated meat is being, you know, grown in a very clean and sterile environment, so it's, you know, therefore, you know, healthier or better for the uh, consumer as well. And yeah, I think your last question is to um, talk about the entire process, right, of making cultivated meat. Am I right? That's right, yeah. Yeah, okay. So it's kind of a lengthy process, but I'll try to summarize. Um, so to make cultivated meat, the process starts from, uh, you know, isolating cells from the animal, or in some cases, it can even be from just a small biopsy from the animal. Um, and the aim is to isolate different type of cells, um, that you want. For example, it can be myoblast, which can, you know, later on turn into muscle or like pre-adipocytes, which can be, which can, um, turn into fats. Um, so that's step number one. So after you get the cells, you also need to, you know, train them so that they will have some of the characteristics that you want, such as um, they are immortalized, because you would you you won't want to, you know, stop the production halfway and then restart the isolation process again. Uh, and the second uh, good but um, characteristic that you want is like to train them how to swim in the culture broth. Because as you know, most of the cells are actually adherent um, and therefore need some kind of a substrate to attach in order to grow. So in by you know teaching them how to swim, you can actually make use of the entire um, volume of the bioreactor um, that will make the production a lot more efficient. And um, so after you get you know all your cells that is immortalized and you know able to grow in suspension, I think it's also um, important to you know make sure that they can actually turn into whatever cell type that you want them to be. For example, muscle and fats, um, because you know like muscle gives you the texture of the meat, and then the fats give you all the flavors, yeah. And there's also um, another important factor, such as you know, um, optimizing for like the culture media that you use, so that you can reduce the cost of production. And then uh, after you get the you know media cost done, then you also want to make sure that you know you have a suitable bioreactor with suitable parameters to scale them up. Yeah. So I think that's probably you know from the very beginning to the end. Yeah, it's the abbreviated version. It's obviously a lot more technical than that. Now, let's look at where we are uh, and where we need to be to achieve commercial scale manufacturing. In our webinar last month, I think it was Yossi Quint from Art Biotech. Uh, he suggested that if we switched 100% of bioreactor capacity in pharma to cultivated meat, it wouldn't go very far at all. I think he said, actually, it wouldn't produce enough meat to feed the Americans for half the day. Um, Tony, is that is that the case? Uh, bioreactor problem? <laughs> we, we do have a bioreactor problem, yeah. I'm not sure the, the number and the count, but for sure we we uh, get to a point where uh, scale is a limiting factor. Um, you know, we've seen uh, successful batches in things maybe what we'd consider pilot scale, 10,000 liters around that scale. But I think to really uh, get this to a point where it can make a significant impact on protein production, not to get a million liters and above and i don't know that that's a mark that anybody's hit but yeah um well let's move on to those scale up challenges and how we can potentially address them i guess we're seeing uh, both technical and capital challenges to bring costs down we need to see large scale and throughput but um without the market demand i guess it's hard to justify tony could you talk us through some of those technical challenges 
Um, I guess increasing the productivity of re reactors would be a, a huge breakthrough for starters. Yeah, I, I love uh, CK's ex explanation of teaching the cells to swim. Uh, that That's a big challenge right now. And you kind of have these uh, opposing uh, things that you need to do that when you get to scale, one wins out and the other loses with uh, at least third tank reactors. So uh, the cells uh, need uh, oxygen, uh, they need nutrients, and, and you need to tightly control the temperature of the cells as well. Mammalian cells are, are, are notorious for being very sensitive to all those conditions as well as the pH. So you need really good mixing. Uh, that tends to require very turbulent conditions, uh, which then tend to generate a lot of shear, which the cells don't like. Um, so a lot of the, the cells don't survive well in high shear conditions. Uh, so using the kind of existing technology that we know of out there, kind of uh, standing on the shoulders of the pharmaceutical industry, uh, most of that, if not all of it, is built on those uh, on stirred tank reactors, and we we get to a certain size where the the shear starts to take over and and damages the cells. Uh, so that that's one of the biggest scale up challenges that we're seeing on the upstream side right now. Mm -hmm. um, Martina, do you have anything to add to that from Cellweb's point of view? I absolutely agree with what you know, Ark said and also what Tony said. We are facing a challenge in terms of scaling up the manufacture of cells that we've never seen before. Uh, we have been, and let's say, inheriting the, the bioreactors and bioprocesses from the biopharma industry, which corporately have to produce the opposite, I would say, or cell like has to produce people that will be slow and high-value products. But culturally, on the other hand, those cell like in general have to produce high amounts of very, I mean, much lower value products because we cannot sell sell at the same price as we sell antibodies, of course. Um, and uh, in terms of number of cells, I, I did coordinate some coordination this time ago. And if we want to see the world with clutched wheat uh, for one year, we want to need around 10 to the 21 cells to do that. And I actually started Googling that number because I had no idea I couldn't figure out exactly 10 to the 21, how much that was. And ultimately, is the number of grains of sand uh, on our planet or the number of stars in the visible universe. So it's ultimately a ginormous amount of cells that we need to do that. So the challenges that we are facing is really, is really big. We don't need to think out of the box. And I agree with what Tony said. Before scaling up and scaling up, we need to definitely revisit, optimize, and intensify the bioprocess per se and then start scaling out that popularized process uh, with something that probably is quite different from the biopharma has been using so far, which if we want to say in a bracket, they are also facing big challenges in terms of scalability with more and more analogics of have coming to life. And so it is a challenge that is faced across the industry uh, and big different industries. And of course, for Senang, it's definitely uh, the highest. And mm. So, Shivanka, if you didn't have anything to add to that, I've got a question for you. Um, uh, did you have anything to add to that? No, I think I think we're headed in the right direction in terms of you know what uh, what I want to talk about the airplane. Mm -hmm. Okay, so where are the major costs, uh, and where technologically do we see most gains being achieved, or costs reducing? I mean, how can we reduce capital spend, um, Shivanka? If you could. 
answer that one for me? Yeah, I think I think the the biggest levers that I I think are going to be important to get those first products to market. First, it has to be recycling. So we have to figure out ways to reuse some part of the media that we're using. So I thought continuous manufacturing is kind of really cool in that sense that you, you get to preserve all those both packets somehow and uh, reuse them. So because a major chunk of the cost associated with the cell culture media is the recombinant both packets. We figure out a way to reuse them, uh, reduce them in a significant way. You're going to be able to drop that cost significantly. The other one would be to just essentially, you know, make cheaper media, but I think that's been talked about enough. Um, and the third one is about trying to use, uh, you know, input materials or, you know, scaffolding materials that can add bulk to the, to the end product, uh, thereby, I mean, of course, not compromising on things like taste, texture, you want to have cultivated meat, taste like meat, otherwise you're missing out on the uh, sort of root value proposition. But uh, if you can do that, then you're going to be able to get to market faster. Mm. I guess, Tony, at CRB, this is um, what you're all about, isn't it? Construction, <laughs> design, and engineering firm. <laughs> your expertise. <laughs> uh, you know, the the top thing I think the, the that faces the industry right now is throughput. Uh, if you can imagine that you you have a 2% or uh, productivity out of your bioreactors, if you can double that, you get double the product for the same amount of capital. So the further we can push the throughput and productivity, the better. Um, from a, from a, Once you get to the capital design process, one thing that we advise our clients is to make sure that your equipment is food grade and not pharmaceutical grade. It's still hygienic and cleanable, uh, but it doesn't require some of the uh, ultra stringent um, finishes and and the controls and things like that. Uh, so that's a way to save on your capital costs. And then one thing that we've seen some of our clients do is co-locating with their raw material. Uh, and that of course offers you savings on your raw materials if you can pipe it directly from a large agricultural producer. Um, but oftentimes that's uh, located on a campus. And so you can uh, use, you can buy steam uh, you can send your wastewater to a central treatment facility. Sometimes even power is an option. So it's almost like you're uh, outsourcing your utilities, uh, the capital costs of those to others, and uh, instead paying for those as you go. Mm -hmm. Martina, did you have anything to input there? Uh, I think we covered coastal media. Uh, uh, we covered capex. Uh, if I followed correctly, and then I think probably the last thing that we might cover is capex at that point. So, ultimately, if we in uh, CKI like that, our next the, the cost in general is not if we are also able to have a system that is you know auto closed and automated, we will be also able to save on. Uh, Operational costs as well. Yeah. Uh, and not only that, but also if we have a system that can run, I mean, of course, now I'm talking about so what we are doing at CRM, but in general, if we have a system that runs continuously, so runs for longer period of times, not only the operational cost and the capital and, and the capex goes down, but ultimately you are saving a lot of costs in all the resources that you are 
uh, that are needed. Now, if you have a, a bioreactor that can run for months instead of five to, to, to six days uh, to, um, to manufacture your cells, of course, you use a lot less material, reduce less waste, and ultimately have a much more um, beneficial impact uh, on the environment as well, which is what you need to really I mean, are there any gains that could be made in optimizing biomass yields? Uh, I mean, how much how possible is it to optimize the bioprocess further than we are at the moment, Martina? Again, people have, of course, different view and different approaches, and these are all welcome again. We are facing, as I mentioned, a, a very big challenge, and we need to think a bit out of the box. Uh, what we uh, believe at CERREV is that uh, the benefit that continuous bioprocessing uh, as demonstrated in the past to bring to different industries, you know, chemical and oil have been moving, as example, years ago from batch to continuous. Of course, that will definitely improve the biomass yield. So every reactor that runs uh, in, in, as a batch, using the type of process, that can be turned into a continuous rather in cells, we can have around three times the yield out of your, out of your reactor. So definitely that is a way to improve uh, the biomass yield. On the other hand, apart from the reactor per se, you can also think of you know, cells that are able to have shorter and shorter doubling time. So whether you are manipulating yourself somehow or whether you are able to find a cell that, you know, you are adapting uh, with media or adapting in general the cells to, to do that. Of course, the quicker the cells they uh, are able to divide, that will my productivity will with will have out of your reactor. So it's cells and media, and then it's the process the same. Um, Shabanka, one of the things you wanted to bring to the table today was the use of microcarriers. You mentioned them earlier with adherent cells versus suspension adapted cells um, in the scale up of cultivated meat. Could you just um, explain why that could be significant? Um, yeah, sure. So I think touching upon what um, one of my co-panelists said about, uh, you know, shear stresses and as you grow larger and more um, complex, you know, just larger, essentially, you need to have higher uh, low, uh, low rates and then that's going to affect cell health. So what we think is that, you know, as as you mentioned, you, we need to stand on giants and figure out. So what has been done in the past, especially in the cell therapy or creating large number of cells, people end up using microcarriers or beets. And I think that if that's worked at scale for them, uh, it's going to be a good place for us to start. Um, because especially if you have something like a texturized uh, microcarriers, you're going to be able to protect the cells from a higher shear stress, um, allowing for more, uh, just generally a higher cell count. Uh, it comes with the caveat that, yes, you're introducing some non-cell material into your culture, at which point it does become a blend with product. But edible microcarriers could be a good sidestep in terms of some of these cost calculations. Um, mm. Instead of, you know, I mean, a lot of the companies are focusing also on suspension systems where they suspension adapt the cells and then grow them in large quantities. That comes with a lot of uh, additional hurdles. Uh, and perhaps this could be an interesting uh, goal. Um, Tony, I believe you've got some ideas about bioreactor design. That, that was the topic of our webinar last month. I mean, your data at CLB uh, shows about three quarters of firms favor microcarriers. So this is uh, this will be less likely to require innovation in bioreactor design. 
Yeah, yeah. And uh, we've seen over the last three years that uh, more companies are moving towards microcarriers. Uh, I think that's exciting for two reasons. Uh, you can really focus innovation on those microcarriers, especially the suppliers that are bringing that. Uh, I think it'll have a higher impact on the industry. And then that those bioreactor designs, I think uh, companies that specialize in that, your, your OEM, your original equipment manufacturers can better understand uh, what how their designs impact uh, the, the microcarrier and cell adherence and minimize those shear stresses. Uh, what, what we'd love to see with bioreactors is, is the industry moving towards maybe not a, a single standard design, but more standard designs so that as uh, cultured or cultivated meat companies develop their processes, they, they have a goal to chase. Uh, we'd, we'd love to see, especially the larger designs, uh, be run outside. Uh, it, it just minimizes the cost of then having to build a, a equipment shell around that and, and condition that space. Um, and just that standard design would then, I think, allow some innovation in bringing those costs down, uh, just making incremental improvements on that. So the, um, we, we'd love to see more of a off-the-shelf model. Uh, that's done on a lot of the food and beverage industry rather than kind of custom or stick built bioreactors every time. It's just very design intensive. It it, it uh, slows that path to market down and I think creates another set of challenges for operating companies, uh, another set of complexities, uh, another another set of conditions that they have to test in the lab. Yeah. Just to chime in on that, uh, custom designs also end up being error prone. You need to kind of validate each thing as you go along. Um, which you know ultimately adds up to the cost price tag. Standard design is best. I'm going to take a couple of questions from the audience here. With, well, this is anonymous user, but uh, if you are asking a question, give us your name. It'd be great. Um, given the amounts of small companies in this industry, do you think it is likely any will be able to individually grow to commercial scale, or do you think collaboration across the cultivated meat sector and possibly other sectors will be required? Uh, CK, would you like to tackle that one? Um, sorry, I just want to understand the question again. So, given the amount of small companies in this industry, do you think it is likely that any will be able to individually grow to commercial scale, or do you think collaboration across the cultivated meat sector and possibly other industries will be required? So, I guess, are we going to see any smaller players become the, the impossibles or beyonds of the plant meat sector? Yeah, I mean, my, my own personal opinion on, on this one would be that um, I think because this is a very novel industry and there are so many things that we need to learn. Um, I mean, most of the knowledge we borrow from the uh, pharmaceutical industry. Um, so I think it would be difficult, you know, for one individual company to do everything themselves. Um, I think a more likely scenario would be, you know, like there's a company that's more specialized in, you know, creating a special like serum free media, some company that make um, scaffolds, some company that's focusing on designing a bioreactor. And I think it's through this collaboration that, you know, this industry can grow a lot faster. Martina, your thoughts? I do like what we see. We don't think that every whole company that we have a development in the field will be able to you know scale and be able to produce the product scale. I don't see it now to be the case. And uh, 
we, as Sukik said, we are very heavy state, very new industry, a lot of challenges. We don't know much. We need to work together. And then with, of course, we'll be to put this in a sense, coming in to support which we take the street. But then I think there will be, with this some centralized consultants or some big, uh, again, capex infrastructure is, is very big. I mean, will every company be able to Okay, I think we've got a slight sound problem with um, you, Mathlina, so I'm going to see if our Ian, our tech check, can sort that out while I come to Tony. Tony, um, you're obviously working with a lot of these companies. How do you, um, how do you think that uh, they, they will pan out? Uh, I think initially it will be an ecosystem of, of many different companies. Uh, you know, if you look at the capital side, it, if uh, someone looks to build a facility, they take on a lot of risk in um, that, that investment. Uh, so for them to, for example, be able to contract manufacture, they can work with different um, brands uh, to launch their products from that facility so that they can almost, uh, the companies can almost serve as platforms for other companies as we work through some of the massive challenges in the, in the space. Um, a, as we scale, you typically see an industry, uh, see an industry consolidate for efficiency gains, but I, I think that's quite a ways out for cultivated meat. And um, it's just a similar question, actually. I mean, do, is there a micro model that could work for cultivated meat, smaller facilities providing smaller amounts of product more locally? Um, I know that's something that's being proposed by respect farms um, involving farmers in the supply chain, potentially them having small facilities on their farms. Tony, what are your thoughts there? I, that's a good question, Nick. Uh, one interesting example, I think, to watch for that are the vertical farms that are that are popping up where uh, there's an advantage of, of growing lettuce, for example, maybe closer to urban areas rather than uh, in in some of those warmer climates and, and shipping them long distances, uh, so that'll that'll be interesting to see. By nature, those tend to be smaller, less consolidated facilities. Uh, that that industry you're now starting to see showing up in Amazon, uh, uh, Kroger, different places like that. So it will be interesting to watch and see uh, which companies find success, how they find success, and and maybe take some of those lessons. Uh, into the cultivated meat industry. Mm -hmm. um, CK, in Singapore, I mean, how you've got that 30 by 30 model. Um, so you're producing enough food to feed you guys by 2030. Um, do you see that model as being a potential better route to market rather than going for the massive scale? We're just going for a sort of micro model. Yeah, I certainly do. So I think the only benefit with a larger scale is to reduce the cost. So, and at this point in time, I think cost is important but not so much of an issue right now and I think things that are more important is that you know if you think about food right it's actually something that is um, inherited in culture so like people from different parts of the world might have demand for, for different type of fish for example um, so I think if you can have a smaller one a smaller you know model that can feed better feed the local market I think that will be a more ideal um, model Brilliant. And I'm going to take another question here. Kalisa Lim um, has asked, hello all, thank you for your insightful discussions. That's a good start. Um, as a representative of the APAC Society for Cellular Agriculture, 
I would like to ask if developing hybrid products, cell and plants, would help with the scale-up of production. Um, so, so, CK, we'll start with you. Is it in your area? Um, yeah, so I think um, the way I think about it is that, you know, ultimately the aim of uh, cultivated meat is they want to produce like a pure meat uh, without any, you know, other additional additives to make it as similar as possible to the real thing. But, uh, you know, due to the production uh, cost issue, I think a more viable option is actually to create a hybrid product at this point of time. Um, um, yeah, so I think this will definitely, you know, um, be more useful for the short term as we, you know, build up more capacity or gain new knowledge on the production side. Shivanka, would you agree? Yeah, totally. I think um, it's just about trying to get a product to market and get people to taste it. And if that means that you have to add a little bit of pea protein or a mycelium scaffold while you're developing, it, it should be fine as long as the sensory experience and the and the sort of health experience is not compromised. And that can be achieved. Like most of the products like good and just, which are act, uh, good and upside, that are actually getting to market. If you read their declarations to the FDA, they do have uh, pea protein and such as a part of their, their product. So it's necessary in the, sh in the short term to get, it, get that cost in there, get people, get it into people's plate, get that excitement going in the customer. Um, I wanted to ask a question about the use of live animal plasma as an alternative to fetal um, bovine serum-free supplements. I mean, what, what, what role could this play in achieving um, better economics? I don't know if, uh, Shabanka, you're best place to ask that answer that well um, i mean i i just i thought this was an interesting development i think omi uh is is doing this right now and i i don't know personally you know how this is going to pan out but i felt like a panel like this would be an interesting avenue to discuss it uh whether you know i think a lot of the people got into cultivating things about like an animal origin being system right but at the same time this relies on animals but perhaps more ethically um, then, then slaughterhouse meat or FBS. So, does that make it a good thing, or more than like moral judgments? Is it is it a good pathway for the cultivating meat industry in terms of a marketing lens, and also later on from a cost lens? I'm sure it's great, but yeah, would love to you know, kind of put it out there, kind of trying to balance this in my head as well. So, wanted to know your thoughts. Probably Martina and CK are best to answer that one. Yeah, probably CK, to be honest. The um, general, uh, I would say, I don't have a lot to, to add, and this is not really my area of expertise, but definitely considering the, the product and the reason why we're doing that, we would like to be completely animal-free in terms of, apart from you know, the cell themselves that we start with, not having any other animal component in there. Serum has always been the gold standard in terms of boosting cell proliferation uh, in in our classic in vitro culture uh, so we need to find a, a way to uh, to you know be far away from uh, from the use of serum uh, apart from that serum and any other shouldn't be uh, present in the media I don't have really much I'm pretty sure that CK with Moto go for it CK I mean I, I totally agree with um, what uh, Shubanka and uh, Martina said. So, I mean, 
I mean, if you use FBS, then it kind of defeats the purpose of uh, making a bacon meat. Because the idea is to create a cell-free meat. Uh, sorry, an uh, uh, animal-free meat. Um, and also, if you think about the from the uh, scalability um, perspective, it is also not scalable at all. Like, if you want to produce, the, you know, even just to run, like, 100,000-liter reactor, you're going to need so much um, FBS that you have to, you know, grow or, like, you know, culture a lot more cows. And that is just doesn't make sense. And also not to mention that the, the price that comes with FBS is extremely high. Um, so I think, yeah, probably not, not going to be a viable option in, in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to talk now about feed grade, uh, food, uh, food grade, sorry, versus pharmaceutical grade um, components. Um, for media, I know that was um, the subject of much debate following some UC Davis in California uh, research that was published recently that got um, yeah got people talking. Tony, do you have anything to say about that? Yeah, that's. Um, I mean, the, the uh, we certainly want to go f- uh, food grade here versus farmer grade. Uh, from a facility perspective, we rarely see a facility that's both food and farmer grade. Uh, typically the regulatory body, uh, for, um, you know, at the FDA in the U S can inspect any, uh, facility that would fall under its jurisdiction. So if we had a facility that was making food and pharma grade, that facility would typically be designed and operated to always meet pharma grade. And there's just so much more operating and, and capital expense on that. Uh, that we would strongly encourage the industry to, to move to, uh, food grade only facilities, which is going to require specialist bespoke bioreactors, I would assume. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. We've got a question here from Claire Worrell. Uh, she asks, uh, "What is currently the realistic timeline for products reaching commercial scale?" In your opinion, I guess commercial scale. She's talking about mass produced. Tony, um, uh, let me. It's going to be a long answer here. Uh, what what we're seeing from our data is that three quarters of companies plan to launch a product in the next two years in the U.S. Um, so that tells us that they will have um, something on the market that's likely similar to what we're seeing right now, where where it's it's a niche product, uh, potentially in a restaurant uh, or um, uh, you know a, a single grocery store location, something like that. Um, I I think we're probably looking at something on the order of decades to get to that commercial scale. Uh, there, there's a lot besides just the technical aspects that, that we've talked about here. Uh, there's consumer acceptance. So there will be a lot of iterations back and forth. And we see this as kind of a, a, a stair step or a ladder approach to achieving that commercial scale. Um, you know, it, it, just from the financial side, investors are going to want to see a payback on this. And so I think companies will... Um, it, it, they'll get into maybe a model where uh, you you launch, you look to realize gains and profits in that area, and then kind of ne- look to the next step of of scale up and commercialization. So if we look at what we've seen historically, uh, the the techno we have the technical challenge, but we also have the market challenge as well as the financial, and that's just going to take some time to work through. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we're just at the start here, aren't we? These are, well, in America, for instance, it's just two products from two companies. 
you've probably got a better handle of how many other companies have, have had those dossiers into FDA and USDA. Um, but it's just the start, isn't it? It's going to take a long time to disrupt a, a well, it's essentially an age-old meat industry. So, Shabanka, did you have any um, ideas about timelines, thoughts? Um, no, I think it's very well covered by the rest. A uh, couple of years is very realistic that you'd see something on some degree of restaurants and yeah. all the way up there. And that's the way it's happened in Singapore, isn't it? With um, Good Meat uh, CK, that you know first first regulated seat that's available in um, some restaurants and I think uh, a butchery, Hoover's, is it, um, in Singapore? Yeah. Um, would you agree that we're talking decades? For Yeah. Would you agree that we're talking yeah. decades before KFC are using a cultivated meat? The chicken instead of the normal chicken. Well, I think for KFC to adopt this, I think the price need to go to quite low. So I think you know decades is probably um, needed to achieve that. Um, yeah, I mean I I agree with um, what what you said. Okay, we got a question here from uh, Julianne Rogers Stapleberg. Uh, hello, thank you for the valuable discussion. I'm curious about the perception of genetically modified organisms, GMOs. Have you noticed any shift in the acceptance of GEOs from regulatory bodies or the public? Um, I don't know who's gonna answer that one, so I'll just come in. Maybe Nick, I can kick the conversation off. Uh, at least in the US, there's now a distinction between gene edited and then a transgenomic modification of organisms. So I think uh, that the gene editing is, is not considered a, a GMO and, and does not have to be labeled that way. So I think that technology holds a uh, major, major promise and potential, at least in the U.S. market. Um, I, I do wonder a lot about the, the, the genetic mod, the transgenetic modification. Uh, as we launch these products, they're more niche and more premium, and that tends to require a non-GMO label in, in the U.S. And when you talk about some other markets, um, products, genetically modified products aren't even allowed when, you know, when you look at Europe, that that's a huge barrier there. So I'd say that uh, I wouldn't count on um, being able to get non-GMO products, at least into to those markets at this point, since these products are more niche and more premium. Um, I, I think the gene editing route has more potential. Uh, this is just my opinion and speculation, but I'd, I'd be curious to get the, the other panelists' thoughts on that. Who's going to come? Yeah, I, think, I think I can totally agree with that, uh, specifically because even in India, uh, they've put out like a separate circular. This is with plants, so this is of course not for cell culture food, but it could give us good uh, sort of, you know, direction where this is flowing. So gene editing, when you use site-directed nucleases like CRISPR-Cas9, which do not essentially add any transgenic elements. So if you you have a chicken genome and if you're just messing up with the chicken genome slightly, but it's still a chicken genome, you're not adding any antibiotic resistance, you're not adding any fluoresces, any of that stuff. Um, regulators are largely okay with that, especially in India and plants. They recently came out with a whole, uh, you know, very detailed sort of guideline about if you use this kind of technology and edit this kind of the gene in this way, then we're not going to regulate you under the GMO laws. And I think uh, we could see this cross-application happen in a lot of the more stringent jurisdictions, probably like Europe, where people are kind of 
uh, looking at more common sense things. So if if this could this dysfunction in the genome could be created naturally, you're just accelerating a natural process, and you're not adding anything which is unnatural, so to speak, or ungenomic within that cell, then it should be allowed. And uh, that still gives people liberty to create cell lines that are large and scalable without having to go through the more stringent route of GL. Mm -hmm. um, CK, what are the main considerations when building um, a manufacturing facility? Um, yeah, I'm not too sure whether I'm the right person to answer that, but um, from what I can see, I think uh, the most important factor is probably something like, uh, you know, rental cost versus utility. Um, you know, like in Singapore, I think it's actually not the ideal country to um, build a manufacturing plant just because the land here is so expensive. And also, you know, in terms of manpower as well, like there's talent pool here, but they don't come cheap. Um, and yeah, I think that, that those are the important factors that I can um, think of when building a plant. Although I should have been directed at you, probably better, Tony. <laughs> uh, well, well answered. The the cost of land, for sure, is a as a challenge as well as the availability of the the uh, talent pool. And one of the interesting areas that we see with the talent pool is you need uh, biotech talent for the upstream and food talent for the downstream. And at least in the U.S., that's the the biotech talent tends to be clustered towards large urban areas like Singapore, where land is expensive, and food manufacturing tends to be closer to food supply, which is more in the the rural areas, and uh, that that's where you tend to have food talent. So there there's a little bit of a tension just on where you locate your site. Um, I think another challenge that we see in this space is that the processing equipment uh, accounts for less than half of the cost of the facility, typically around a third of the cost. So all just the the structure, the utilities, uh, all of that tend to really add up. And, and these uh, facilities need tight control to, for for temperature. Um, and then you know the I'd say the other challenge within the industry we're we're uh, focused on the upstream. The growing the cells, like CK said, teaching them to swim. But then the downstream, there are still some uh, challenges there too. Uh, you need um, facilities that can process raw meat. So they need typically are temperature controlled below 40 degrees, a lot of um, chilled storage space. So those tend to be major energy users. And the hygienic design is so critical because those, those have to be clean daily. Uh, in, a, in a way that pre prevents microbial growth. So, um, yeah, it's, it's about finding the right facility to lease and then uh, building it out so that it's cleanable and, and the temperature is precisely controlled on the downstream as well. <laughs> um, we touched on this a little last month um, in our Bioreactors um, webinar, um, but the arguments for and against single-use uh, versus steel tank um, bioreactor, I mean, what, what are your clients telling you um, Tony. Yeah, that's uh, so single use uh, has a lot of advantages at the small scale or, or early stage um, uh, processing and, and manufacturing. Uh, our, our clients typically tell us that they won't go above a thousand liters for a single use uh, bioreactor because the bags just get so hard to handle and to load. Um, so if, if once you hit that scale, 
single use uh, it tends to be limited and and above that it's out of the question but below that especially if you're still uh, perfecting your process they're great because you don't have to install a bunch of um, piping between your your reactor chain you can weld those tubes together or or just use those aseptic quick connects to to connect those very rapidly uh, it's a lower capital cost typically uh, and then what we're also hearing is that there was a, a pinch point for the bags in the supply chain during uh, COVID, but it, it, seem, it seems like that has moderated and cleared out. So I think for an early stage company that's still refining their process and doesn't have a lot of capital to spend, I think they're a great option. We, we still do get some concerns that uh, they're not directly scalable. Uh, th that it just doesn't have the line of sight as you're looking towards that 10,000 or 100,000 or, or 1 million liter reactor. Um, so that it's a consideration. But if you're looking to just get product out there and in the trial environment or just see how the cells perform at a larger scale, I think that the single use bioreactors are great options. Um, we've probably got a couple of minutes left and uh, maybe time for one question more from the audience um martina um how do you envisage the industry looking in the future um small to medium-sized companies um serving markets closer to home um or consolidation just a few massive massive players uh if i had only had a crystal ball to answer that question <laughs> that, 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 that's the well, how would you like to see it evolve <laughs> i do think that uh we will probably see first a centralized system with bigger uh companies with big manufacturing facilities distributing and the product large had a bit of sound issues there it sounded like you were in a bioreactor so tony do you want to answer that <laughs> <laughs> well i'm sure we can fiddle with it later and <laughs> sort of tuning out <laughs> uh it, i think that uh the smaller players uh close to home is the way to go here we're, we're still sorting through a lot food is as emotional as as well as uh you know critical to staying alive so to have companies that are close to home that understand the culture of the consumers that are eating it as well as the regulatory agencies um, I, I think that'll be critical and then as companies develop the revenue to have that in in scale or in-house help or or can hire consultants to expand to other markets um, I, I think that that will make sense for companies to grow and potentially consolidate but also uh, look to export product as well so I, I think that just that that local touch just it's easier to be in touch with consumers and regulators regulators regulatory bodies and, and understand how to get a successful product into market mm -hmm. i mean ck you're, you're singapore uh, food agency they're reputed to be the the nicest agency to try and get a product through the approvals process uh, how do you see all this panning out um yeah i, I think i think you're right i mean SFB compared to US, I think it's um, more lenient, or, or at least they um, will put up a more clear guideline. Um, so I think that that is very helpful to you know all the uh, cultivated meat industry as well, um, because one of the biggest um, 
thing for the company is that we don't know which area to invest in. Like, you know, it could be um, that you are, you know, trying to make sure that your product is not, um, like your cell line is stable enough that it doesn't have genetic drift. But, you know, maybe that's not something that the regulatory is actually looking at. Then you'll just be wasting up time um, chasing down that, that route. Yeah. Shibanka? Yeah, I think um, I think I can echo what everyone is saying in that locally you need like the smaller players to talk to the regulators, get the product together, find that product market fit. But what I see in terms of the supply chain is it's quite a bit of consolidation. You find one product that works and then you cross-supply to a bunch of use cases. Um, and then like hyper-specialization, much larger sized companies in the back end. But then smaller companies, similar to how food operates, you know, there's tons of snack food companies, or whether it's in cultivating, whether it's in plant-based meat or some other um, snacks or whatever you find off the shelf, lots of choice. If you look at all the foods, flavors, the ingredients that go into it, you can probably trace that back to a handful of companies. And I see that that's probably how the supply chain will end up. For and I've got my fingers crossed, Martina, we had you coming on first. The last word's going to go to you. Yeah, so do you want me to re-answer the question I answered later? Yeah, no, your sound's perfect as well. So, yeah. <laughs> well, you could, yeah, please do. Fill us in on that question earlier. Yeah, so, yeah, what I, what I, I apologize. What I, no, was, don't worry. What I was saying is that I think uh, that in the future, we will see mostly a centralized system with some bigger players, ultimately, some similar to what ultimately Jumanko uh, was saying, you know, the companies that are then having the big infrastructure to be able to supply, to supply cultured meat. I see it difficult to have, for how beautiful the idea is to have local cultured meat companies also engaging with farmers. I think that will happen, but only later, not uh, in this near future because the farmers will have to have a system that they are able to operate without being scientists or engineers. So I think that will happen possibly later, later in the future, but before having some bigger companies that are then uh, making the product at uh, scale. Brilliant. Well, that's all we have time for today. Um, we hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast. Uh, we'll be taking a break in August, um, but we look forward to seeing you all in September when we'll be focusing on the topic of genetic engineering, biomaterial design, and sequencing for growth media and cell lines. So uh, another branch of what we've been discussing today, but we'll be diving deeper into that. If you didn't get a chance to ask your question today, or we didn't get a chance to respond to it, feel free to reach out to any of our speakers on LinkedIn. I'm sure they'd love to get back to you directly. And I can see that CK has been answering a few of them in the, uh, in the chat there. That's fantastic. And finally, don't forget our magazine, Protein Production Technology International. The July-August 2023 edition will be available later today. So have a read. Let me know what you think and email or connect with me on LinkedIn to find out how you can be involved in future issues. And don't also forget uh, that the 11th and 12th of October, that is the Future of Protein Production Live, taking place at Rye Amsterdam in the Netherlands. And uh, yeah, really looking forward to that and looking forward to seeing you. So thank you for joining us today. That's about it. Thank you for listening to the Future of Protein Production Podcast. We hope you gained valuable insights and knowledge about the innovative technologies and practices that are transforming the way we produce protein. Don't forget to subscribe to Protein Production Technology International, our multimedia magazine, and follow us on social media to stay up to date with the latest news and updates. 
Stay tuned for more exciting episodes.